Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Today we go behind the scenes of the oldest university-based art museum in the United States, Yale University Art Gallery, founded in 1832. Our guide is gallery director Jock Reynolds, who's led the museum from 1998 onward, a period of transformative growth, both of the gallery's physical space and of the exceptional collection of art inside. As always, we'll take some of your questions. Please submit them to Twitter uh, via at Yale or by email to socialmedia at yale.edu. Jock, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Great to be here. It's been an amazing year for uh, Yale University Art Gallery. You completed a, I believe it was a decade-long renovation and expansion. Yeah. Uh, you opened that a year ago tomorrow. That's correct. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this um, uh, enormous renovation and expansion changed the art viewing experience. Yeah. Well, first of all, what's really important to know is the renovations and expansion of the art gallery took place within President Levin's entire redistricting of the arts area, the master plan for all of the arts at Yale. So we were just one element in what happened. But what the, the switching around of buildings and the construction of new buildings and renovations made possible was for the art gallery to basically re re-inhabit and restore all three of the historic buildings on Chapel Street that it had inhabited with its collections and faculty right. from 196, excuse me, 1866 when the, the art gallery moved into the first school of art building in America, Street Hall, to its 1928 uh, old art, Yale Art Gallery designed by Edgerton Swartow and its 1953 Louis Kahn building designed uh, by the great architect Kahn who also did the British Art Center 25 years later. So you've connected three buildings that were near each other but you, you couldn't otherwise access. Yeah. They were directly adjacent to each other so the architecture we did with any Edit Associates literally allowed us to, to move people directly from one building to the next to the next. So I, it really feels to me like a great three-course meal of architecture, if you will. You, it's a much enlarged gallery, but when you walk into each building, each one is a great piece of architecture of its time. And the contents, what we put on display there, have been thoughtfully arranged to be visually consonant and poetic with those three structures. And we've added some really wonderful architecture to the top of the building that's contemporary and, and due to you know also the issues of needing to make these buildings readily accessible full handicapped access to all three of them. Mm -hmm. Now what this is amazing about this is you take a guess if you know those dates how many uh, years of deferred maintenance were fixed in this uh, project it totals to, to uh, 280 years. None of those buildings had been renovated since they were first built so this was a major campaign to bring the buildings back to the full stature and beauty of what they were originally. In a sense, they were the three great artworks architecturally that contained the gallery's collections over time and now display them in their fullest beauty once again. They're very different buildings, architecturally speaking, and yet yeah. when you proceed from, say, the Kahn building into... Uh, is it Street Hall? Is that the next one? Over? Well, no, it's, we oh, call it's it the old Yale Art Gallery, the Swartow building right, was the exactly. name of the architects, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. It isn't jarring at all when you go from this sort of modernist con building yeah. into the much older building. Yeah, 
Well, I think one thing, if you, if you go to something like the Met or the Louvre, some of these great buildings which have a more singular sense of architecture, you tend to get a little bit exhausted by it after a while, which is the distinct differences mm. between these three buildings in a funny way refresh you when you go from one mm -hmm. to the other. And of course, all of our curators and people we worked with together have thought about which collections are most appropriate to put in the Khan building or the Swartow building or Street Hall. And I think that's the, it's not just the renovation of the buildings, but the installations my colleagues have created that have also made it the beautiful experience it is. One of the uh, interesting things about the renovation is that you seem to have created a lot of new views and vistas from both inside the museum and on top of it of yes. Yale and yes. of downtown New Haven. Yes. Yes. And I'd be curious to hear a little bit about uh, the thinking behind that. It was obviously deliberate. Yeah. yeah, that was very purposeful. Actually, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the other thing. If you're in a museum, you sometimes really want and need different kinds of releases and reliefs from the intense experience of looking at art. And what could be more beautiful than to look out across this great campus mm -hmm. and city from various perspectives, in a sense, to refresh your eye and relieve your visual palette for a moment. And also, frankly, to look at the other architecture that exists on this beautiful campus mm -hmm. and city. And so we made a lot of decisions and, and having the time to do it with a process that was really a two-stage process. There were two points in which we did the actual renovation over two, three your periods, we got to think a lot about which windows do you want to keep open, which ones might you want to close for an exhibition wall. So a lot of uh, thinking and reflection went into that. And I have to say the architects were great to work with, but our staff was really wonderful in, in helping us arrive at the aesthetic decisions to have certain views and in some cases close off others. Now, um, it seems to me that most, uh, most art museums and most first-rate art museums are freestanding in a way, but mm -hmm. uh, Yale Art Gallery is nestled within a major university. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how that makes uh, the gallery, how it sort of distinguishes the gallery from other great museums. Yeah. Well, one thing that a lot of people don't normally think about is Yale's actually the only Ivy League school that has a professional school of visual art, a school of music, a school of drama, and architecture. Others have architecture, but it's the one Ivy League institution in which, from the very beginning, when John Trumbull came as an artist to build and design and install his own work in the art gallery in 1832, a living artist was accepted as a central member of the college mm. and later university community. So Yale is a place where, you know, in my training as an artist, where you feel completely comfortable as a true member of the academic community here. And our professional schools not only train some of the great artists in the, in the world, but we also teach our undergraduate courses from the faculties of those professional schools. And it was only really later, in 1940, believe it or not, that Yale added the, the full discipline of art history in an art history department. So Yale has been uniquely artist-centric. Uh, it had the first school of art and also the first school of drama in America. So mm -hmm. that there's been a, it's, you know, it's in the water and, and in the DNA of this place very deeply at this point. It also serves uh, an important role, cultural role, in the city of New Haven. Yeah. Um, I was uh, in there uh, earlier today, and there are school children traipsing around yeah. everywhere and yeah. uh, really being engaged by, yeah. uh, I don't know if they were docents from the gallery itself or their yeah. teachers from yeah. their schools. Well, we've, you know, one of the things we've really done in the last 15 years, and, and we started it in a big way in the year 2000, is we really redefined our mission to be not only a museum with a great collection, but to put our collecting, you know, part of the mission, an equal balance with our educational mission. We are, first and foremost, a teaching museum mm -hmm. with a great collection. 
And what we've done in the intervening years is to not only create many more facilities for sharing the collection. There are now eight object classrooms in the, and a whole learning center, and there's a whole teaching gallery in the museum. But even more importantly, we've given more undergraduate and graduate students central roles in mm -hmm. guiding uh, students, other students and colleagues in the public through the collections, and we now have an endowed graduate student teacher program that teaches directly from the collection. Now, these people are guided and trained by some of our great art historians and curators and volunteers on our board, but more and more we entrust students to take a strong role in what we do. There's currently a student curated exhibition on the fourth floor of the Con mm -hmm. building. We've done six of those in recent years. There are three more in production. Uh, so this is a place where students get not only exposure to great works of art, but they really learn if they want to. They can engage themselves in any aspect of, of museum practice and, and learn a lot about mm. it through doing while they're in our midst. And yet the collection is, in fact, and has been growing enormously in yeah. the last uh, yeah. 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, if you would discuss a little bit the priorities that have driven acquisitions yeah. at uh, the gallery. Well, one of the things that's been most interesting in the era when President Levin was president, it's, it's clear to everyone that Yale became a much more global university. We now have students from all over the world studying here. And one of the exciting things that happened is we actually added four more departments to the uh, art gallery during that time. And two of them were especially important. And we added a whole new department of African art, mm -hmm. which covers a whole continent that was really only represented with a small group of works, but not a department. And we've added a major department of Indo-Pacific art, which is, again, takes on all the, the sea cultures and of, of the South Pacific all the way down from, you know, basically the Formosa used to be off China all the way down to India. And, and we've uh, added a whole department of coins and metals, and we've broken our department of early European art and modern art into two major departments because the collections are so strong. Mm -hmm. So if you walk into the art gallery now as a student from almost anywhere in the world, to some degree you can see your own identity or your own culture in some way and feel that you know there's something that, of, of, in a sense, of you or your heritage there to be seen. Uh, and I think that's an important thing, uh, as well as a, that you can learn from you know the cultures and expressions of other people across time, and and that's been very exciting to be able to provide that and and to to also along with that provide the endowed positions, and the funding that have made those new departments and the naming of galleries possible, so that that coincided also with what I call the Great Levin period of sort of Yale's globalization. The collection is enormous at this point. Uh, yeah. Something like 200,000 total objects, yeah. uh, many fewer on display, of course. Yeah. But um, can you name maybe one or two uh, of the many, many acquisitions in the last you know, 15 years or so that, um, that you're especially proud of? Well, you know, what's interesting is if, uh, you, could, you could name a single work or two, but in fact, what's been amazing is in the case of some of the things I was just talking about, Charles Benenson gave his entire African art collection to Yale, almost 600 works and 192 major works of modern and contemporary art. Richard Brown Baker gave his entire collection. I mean, it wasn't, it's not as though I couldn't also name it's not, some individual it's not works. It's piecemeal growth. Yeah, it's just, in, in some cases, people have brought us whole major bodies of artwork that we didn't have before. So that's been almost stupefying, the generosity mm -hmm. of what some donors have added to the collection. And some of them, some of these collections have come from people who are not Yale alumni, but are interested in a teaching museum that also serves the 
community of New Haven. I wanted to jump back a bit to your yeah, question um, when you were asking about, you know, the, you know, what we, you see school children, you see a lot of people from the city in the gallery now that you're absolutely right to perceive that. When Street Hall was given to Yale College and was constructed, believe it or not, during the American Civil War between 1864 and 66, it was given by the streets, a couple from New Haven who had seen the great Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and they came back and said, New Haven needs something like this, and Yale does, and they gave it to Yale with the proviso that its front door open onto Chapel Street and be available to the city, and the other side door open to the old Yale campus. So a lot of people don't know this, but the, the first women to get degrees at Yale were happening back in the, in the latter part of the, uh, the 19th century, almost, you know, almost a, a hundred years before Yale College went co-ed, and educational programs for uh, people from the city of New Haven to come in and study, and, and, uh, and uh, visitors from the city to be involved with the gallery just happened very, very early on. And there's, there's no admission. No, the gallery is always free, and, and Paul Mellons, who was a member of the gallery's board when he gave the British Arts Center across the street, entirely paid for that. And the last major gift of Mr. Mellons' life, which was $95 million, came with a stipulation that Yale never charge admission to the British Arts Center. So between these two teaching museums, you frankly have two of the greatest collections in the world of their kind, and no one has to pay a single dollar to walk in the front door which means that you can often just come in and maybe look at your favorite painting for five or ten minutes and not feel that you have to try to get your $25 mm -hmm. ticket worth. Mm -hmm. And it allows, frankly, individuals and families from all walks of life to come and feel that it's, it's their institution. And we make a real point of wanting people to know, although Yale is clearly perceived as a, you know, an elite Ivy League institution, that this is an institution in which we welcome all the public and anyone who wants to come our way. And you can't say that enough. So with a large collection, uh, with 200,000 items, you can only have, I imagine, a few thousand on display at any given time. Yeah. How do you and your curators go about deciding when it's time to add something new from the existing collection yeah. and put it on public display? Yeah. And, and sort of what are the questions you ask yeah. yourself? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question because one of the first conversations I had with President Levin when he hired me, he said, he said, Jock, don't just ask me for a bunch more gallery space. He said, do something to make these collections more readily accessible and usable. He said, I know how large they are. I know they're going to grow, but, you know, we've got to find a way to share this work more fully. And he was absolutely right. So that's been done in a number of ways. First of all, to even know what you want to show and to let people know what's there, we had to photograph and document the collection. You know, libraries were way ahead of museums in putting their collections online, but you know, the art gallery 15 years ago had about 1,500 of its artworks photographed. We now have 135,000 of the 200,000 done, and a lot of the ones still to do are decorative art objects or coins and medals. So mm. you can go on the internet or a Yale student or a, or a kid in high school here can go on and see an awful lot of what we have online and know what our teacher can decide what they might want to see. And then the other key thing was to create these object classrooms and places that if something wasn't physically on view in the gallery, you could ask for it and bring it into an object classroom for a class session or professors could ask some things that weren't in the collection galleries to go to the new teaching gallery atop the Swartow building. But then the other key thing that people often don't think about is you've got to have staff to do this. Mm -hmm. So we had to jump uh, tremendously the number of registrars, art handlers, people to get the stuff out and to carefully handle it and bring it into the galleries, whether you're going to install it in the galleries or whether you're going to bring it to a classroom. Uh, our personnel growth went from 60, uh, uh, 68 full-time people to 147 now in the time I've been here. And a lot of that has to do with making the collections accessible by documenting them and then bringing 
people in, uh, in direct contact with original works of art, which is our greatest desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're happy that someone in, in Moscow today can watch this program or go on the internet and see what we have, but we'd most be happy if someone could eventually get here to see the works if they can. But Let me follow up on uh, digitization a little bit. Uh, yeah. It's something that's happening here. It's mm -hmm. happening, I imagine, at, at most museums. Yeah. How is it changing um, uh, the way museums think about their mission? Well, I think, you know, when you have so many things that people give you that they've lived with and treasured, and you just say you own them and you don't make use of them, you're really not doing them uh, any service for their generosity and you're not honoring the art itself. I mean, it means nothing to say your stuff's in a collection unless at some point it becomes visible in some mm -hmm. way. So, you know, making it visible through digital means or in books, you know, the traditional ways it's been done is important, but we really maintain that it's that direct contact with the original work of art that gives you that special feeling, and that's something that really happens when you're just right there in front of it. For example, if you look at most screens or most books and then go see a painting in a gallery, you're always usually struck by how the scale of it looks completely different. Mm. Often, you know, the paintings are all sized similarly in a book, and you go to a gallery and you find one of them's, you know, 14 inches by 16 inches, the other is 8 feet tall by, mm -hmm. you know, 4 feet wide. So, and then you don't see the texture of the painting in the book or the way the impasto of the painting's put on. So, we, we really believe that the work of art carries its own complex information, and, mm -hmm. and that's the other reason we want to make the original available as much as possible. But, in order to make that possible, you want people to know what you have. Even as you change uh, what's actually on display at any given yeah. time uh, in, within the, the physical museum, there must be certain pieces because of the extraordinary wonder they yeah. inspire in people, because of their sheer celebrity, yeah. are always on display and almost yeah. never come down except perhaps yeah. for restoration or yeah. or something. Can you talk about some of those that are in well, your collection? Well, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, the, the great founding collection that John Trumbull, you know, brought when he designed the Trumbull Gallery and installed his, his, his own personal collection it was basically his great portrait of Washington. It was the great Revolutionary War battles. And it was the defining uh, two paintings that bracketed them that Thomas Jefferson urged him to paint, which was the signing of the Declaration of Independence and Washington giving up his commission. Jefferson said, great, do the battle history paintings the way they do in England and France. But what was unique about America is this is what we did it for. And Washington could have been King George IV. He decided to give up his commission. You have to paint those as the bracket to the wars. Mm. And what a wonderful you know, sort of decision and encouragement that was. Remember Trumbull, he's no father, was the colonial governor of, of Connecticut, the first one to break with the British. And so, you know, when he came back as a young man after the war, when people like Benjamin West and, and, and Gilbert Stuart and, and Copley were making a lot of money in late careers in London, he was the young person who came back and to some degree allows us to see what our, the founding of our country looked like, who those principal people were. And that was an amazing thing that had happened. And so the Yale Art Gallery opened in 1832. That's 40 years before the Met opened. And the, the, uh, the Hartford Wadsworth Athenaeum mm -hmm. opened in, in 1842, the first major civic museum. So Connecticut occupies actually a very formative period in, in the advent of, of art in America. So the Trumbull paintings are always on view, the great Van Gogh Night Cafe, many of our great Homer's and Aiken's paintings or our great Rothko's and Pollock's. I'm used to, I mean, I, you can tick through the gallery. There are certain things that have such dynamic presence. You just, you look at them, and this is the power of a great work artist. just says, don't you dare take me off the wall, or, you know, some work really fights to stay in place. 
But you were asking, you know, about making things accessible. What we do now is to rotate the collections much more vigorously. Mm. And so, you know, at least three times a year, if often more in many departments. These are the permanent collections. The permanent collections yeah. are, are changing all the time. And because we have over 50,000 works on paper in that building that can be accessed in our study rooms, works on paper often can only be up for a few months and then they're taken off view. But we want people to know that, particularly in our prints, drawings, and photography collections, that there are things that you you can see in the gallery sometimes briefly, but they're right upstairs and you can book them for an exhibition or private or individual research. So making the collection readily accessible happens in many ways. Jack, I'm going to take a question uh, from a viewer. Mike H. Uh, writes by email to ask, which artist uh, currently not represented in the museum do you think would complement or sort of flesh out the, the collection? Is there somebody you're really hungry for? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. We just made an acquisition that it's going to go on view in, in March by David Park. Uh, it's a, that's a painting called The Model. And we happen to own some great paintings by Richard Diebenkorn and Elmer Bischoff, who are two of the great San Francisco Bay Area artists where I grew up out in California. But their great teacher and mentor was David Park. And it just so happens that there was a wonderful woman here in Connecticut who at one point bought his, I think, one of his truly greatest, if not his greatest painting. And it, it finally emerged from that estate and we've purchased it. And starting uh, toward the end of this coming March, you're going to see a great display of some of our uh, American art from that wonderful period of the 50s and 60s in, in the Bay Area. So, you know, all the time we're looking for, for sometimes key works that we can acquire. And some of these come up as opportunities out of nowhere. And some of them we research and keep hunting until we find something that we really feel fills a gap and adds strength, either strength on strength or or fills the lacuna in the collection in a powerful way. That's one of the great things that our, all our curators do, and, and, and that's where knowledge matters. I'm going to take another question. This one also by email from Duncan G., uh, who asks, how are the collaborations with other colleges, such as Bowdoin and Williams, working out, and yeah. do you think you'll expand that to other museums? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking about that. One of the other ways we've decided to make the collections truly and more readily accessible and actually to learn something from doing it ourselves was about six years ago we got a major grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation and we invited six New England college museums that are outstanding but have much smaller collections than ours to come to us with their, with their curators and faculty and say, what would you like to borrow? We were in the midst of renovations. We said, you know, no holes barred. What, you know, just tell us, what would you like to borrow in order to teach a course or courses you couldn't otherwise teach if you borrowed things from us? And we did that with Bowdoin College. We did it with Dartmouth. We did it with Mount Holyoke. We did it with Williams College. We did it with Smith, and we did it with Oberlin. And what came out of that was so fascinating in terms of, of, of the installations and the shows our colleagues at other institutions did that were interesting to us and clearly memorable for them and allowed them to teach more fully in ways they had not been able to do without such single source loans. But we learned something about our collections. Anytime someone shows your work in a different configuration, researches it, teaches with it differently, you learn more. That's been so successful that we've continued that program and we recently received a multi-million dollar endowment to uh, support that perpetually. So you're going to see a lot more and we've actually already done some other collaborations with American universities and colleges, but that's going to continue on as a constant of our museum going forward. 
So digitization, to, to sort of link these two topics a little bit, doesn't seem in any way a disincentive uh, for museums to, to actually share the physical works of arts themselves. Not at all. I th the, the beauty of digitization, and we have, you know, this great powerful database is that when you're thinking about an exhibition you want to do, you can just go onto the database and say, well, you know, what are we owned by Winslow Homer? And it'll throw up all these paintings and prints and drawings and watercolors, and you can say, well, if I want to, you know, select from this, you know, you don't have to go physically immediately look at every drawer, every painting rack to see it, but you can at least from these thumbnail uh, reproductions or blow them up full on your screen, you can, you can sort of make preliminary checklist for what you put in an exhibition or a book or a course. That's very valuable. There's nothing, and what could be better in a sense, it's a deep visual uh, reference library in addition to the information that comes with the database. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, knowing what you have in order to, uh, it's like having, you knowing all the ingredients you have available if you're a great cook. I mean, you don't want to just think you got five or six things to cook with, you know, you want the what's in the whole pantry. <laughs> but also people, people who are seeing these works of arts um, through digital means initially yeah. uh, aren't satisfied necessarily. That, that doesn't yeah. sate their yeah. desire to sort yeah. of interact with the art. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed just because I'm, I'm so visually attuned to yeah. issues of color and scale and everything is, you know, everyone's device often has a different color balance. Mm. So sometimes what you think is even the color of an image, once you actually come to see it in, in the flesh, depending on how you viewed it, wherever you are, is very different. Mm. And there, you know, as I mentioned, there are all these other aspects of, you know, three-dimensional work. You can't walk around it on, a, on unless you get three or four views of it in a digital database. Mm. So they're, depending on the artwork, it's always best if you can get the chance to look at the original, but having the basic reference, you know, mm -hmm. of the work itself is important because without it, you know, how do you think of what you're going to draw on and make accessible? And then you tend to, I think, rely too much on just the great chestnuts and the mm -hmm. collections become a little more static. And, and sometimes just even moving great works into different configurations and juxtapositions with each other changes your sense of how to experience them. You have been running art galleries and museums for decades now. Mm -hmm. San Francisco, Washington, Massachusetts, here in New Haven. Yeah. Have these skills required to run a, um, an art museum changed in any appreciable way in the time that you've been doing it? What is, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, does, is the 21st century art museum uh, leader significantly different in some essential way from somebody doing it in the 1950s? Yeah, I think people expect much more of museums now than they did in their beginning. Museums, when they were founded, did have a smaller viewership, smaller sense of, you know, who was, who was involved in working in them, who was funding them. You know, it was a, the scale of it has, has changed dramatically. I would say what still is essential is to be a good museum director, you really have to understand, know, and, and care about, and be passionate about art. And, and in my case, there are certain areas in which I'm an expert, and other areas where my colleagues know so much more than I do, mm -hmm. but they at least appreciate my eye and my visual judgment. Then, you know, at least in my case, everything since, you know, to learn about administration and finance and legal and construction and, and architecture. Some of that I learned as an artist having to renovate buildings for my own lofts and studios as a, as a young artist. Some of it I learned when I was helping other artists of my age create alternative art spaces and was sort of a seat of a pants uh, uh, education where we all had to do this to help each other support our work when we were rolling out of graduate schools in the late 60s and 70s and trying to figure out how to be artists in America, which isn't an easy thing to mm -hmm. do. 
And then running these bigger institutions, the complexity of, of budgets and, and the cost of producing shows and the escalation of values of, of, of artwork and the, uh, the huge amounts of insurance and, and courier flights and everything involved, everything's gotten more complicated. And I'll give you a good example. This Francis Bacon painting that just triptych sold for $140 million a couple of weeks ago. What do you think it's going to do to some of these future big blockbuster shows when paintings get escalated into values of that scope, when, mm -hmm. when the cost of then insuring those paintings and getting them to museums where they're going to charge these prices for tickets? How much higher can these ticket prices go? How much can people afford to do some of this? These, there are a lot of pressures in the art world now. Uh, that are on a lot of museums. And I have to say, being in the University or College Art Museum, where what we do is so integral to the educational uh, mission and where our collections are so strong, we can draw on our collections, you know, which are just there for us, you know, single source in a way that very few institutions can. We're in a wonderful position to, to be self-reliant and to share, as I mentioned, our collections generously with others and to do it without trying to monetize our collections. We are not trying to monetize our collections, and we've just gone to a free membership program as well. It's a little bit more like public radio, where you know you take advantage of a great resource, and then if you want to contribute back with gifts of your time or art or money, you can do so. And we're finding a wonderful response that's historically been there like that, but it seems to be increasing. Let me ask you about another issue in, um, in art outside of Yale. Um, the De the Detroit Institute of Art is in a mm -hmm. is in a tough spot right now because yeah. it's a publicly owned collection and the city of Detroit is mm -hmm. uh, in bankruptcy, yeah. and there's been some talk about uh, uh, by the bankruptcy administrator of perhaps selling off some of yeah. that collection in order to help pay off the city's debts. Yeah. Do you what is your sense of how that's playing out and likely to play out? Yeah, well, it's a very complicated situation. Graham Beale, a director, is a good friend of mine, and Richard Manugian, who named our American Art Galleries as the past chairman of the board of that institution. So you're right, it's a city owned and it's been heav heavily subsidized by the city and it's had periods of time and economic turmoil while it's been able to be open or closed lesser days. You know, it's, this isn't the first time they've had some trouble. But when it comes to perhaps selling some works in the collection, I don't think it's that well understood that a fair number of, of the greatest works, you know, probably the quite a bit of the majority of them were given by private into pe people and not bought mm. by public money. So the ult ultimate value of that collection is staggering if it were to go on the market, but the things bought with actual city-based funding is probably not as, as big as possible. And I found it incredibly heartening that the regional towns, the suburban towns, were willing to vote a tax on themselves to preserve and help fortify the budget of the, of the Detroit Art Institute. So that support is quite unique in a time when most people are resisting taxes. So th and it's a beautiful museum. I mean, mm. I just love going there. And it was the first major museum uh, in America to buy a lot of the great art when the Fords and you know the, the great uh, wealth of America was centered in Detroit in the, in the 20s in particular and mm. early 30s. So I think, frankly, they're going to work that out in some way, whether it's some kind of private buyout of some of these things that contributes some money to the city to distribute. But because the tragedy of, of Detroit is that these people who work for the city and, and have these legitimate pension obligations mm -hmm. that should come their way should not be left in their old age to not have what was rightfully theirs. And so I, I think there's still going to be some positive way that that works out because if you denigrate that collection in significant ways, it's going to be very hard to build confidence to enhance it again when the city gets back on its feet. 
And, and I think this is a problem in museums that people start, to, whether it's for duress or whether you want to sell a great painting in order to just uh, create a new acquisition fund, you know, how are people going to feel when you take some of your greatest treasures and sell them when they thought they were going to mm. reside there in perpetuity? I frankly would expect to be dumped out the front door if I proposed to show, sell some of our, our great paintings just to maximize new acquisition funds. In fact, I think you were asking about things directors need to do is, you know, a big part of what I and others need to do is to find people who care enough about different aspects of the museum and, and are willing to fund it. And in our case, we've spent most of our time wanting to build our endowments so that the Whenever possible, with the great management of David Swenson at Yale, we've put money into endowment, endowment, endowment. Uh, because if you try to live only off your salary, you're not going to run an art museum. So you know, it's and that I learned that running these alternative art spaces, where every year I had to turn right around and raise the whole budget again. So I'm a kind of an endowment freak. <laughs> Let me take another question uh, from a viewer. This is uh, from Omar. Um, this is a sort of a Yale-centric question, actually. Um, to, uh, can you talk a little bit about the conservation efforts going on at Yale's West Campus, which yes. is a relatively new part of the university, yes, yeah. and uh, the interaction to the extent there is one with, with the gallery? Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. Actually, in the next year or two, you're going to start to hear much more about Yale's West Campus. There's a very large building out there that was uh, was originally part of the Miles Laboratories before Bayer bought it out. It's a, over 425,000 square foot building. To put this a little bit in, in a visual perspective, it's being re-roofed right now and the rooftop is 10 acres. So put that in your mind for scale. Uh, this building has now been given over to the major collecting institutions of Yale, the Peabody Museum, the British Arts Center, Yale's musical, uh, musical instrument collection, and the Yale Art Gallery. And we're in the process. We've already established wonderful science conservation research labs there. We're building out a major conservation center there. We've established a new digital center there. And uh, we just last week, the provost approved a major open study storage uh, collection uh, area that the gallery is going to be developing over the next two years. And so there's going to be much more on display. This gets, again, to the idea of having the collection readily accessible and treating it and having students and people engage it. That's all going to be happening out there in addition to what we do downtown. And again, we'll expand Yale's uh, engagement with art in a very deep way and do something else that President Levin wanted, which was to have a situation where you would, you would have expertise from the arts, humanities, and sciences doing research and work together on West Campus. So, you know, I'm, I'm frankly wishing I were 10 or 15 years younger right now. <laughs> Let me ask you about yourself a little bit. You, as you've mentioned uh, earlier in the yeah. show, you, you are an artist. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have, uh, I can't imagine that you have a whole lot of time to, to make art these days, yeah. but maybe you do, and mm -hmm. uh, I have to believe you have some, some, some things in mind. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, what's going yeah. on for you in the art world? Well, actually, you, well, it's interesting you ask that question because my wife and I have collaborated as artists for you know since we met in the mid '70s, and we've just been asked actually if we'd consider doing a commission for the centennial of uh, of uh, the Panamanian uh, the Panama Exposition at San Diego for the the Contemporary Art Museum out there, who's run by someone who's been after us to do something for years, and and I, we're trying to figure out whether there'd be any way we could produce a new work for this, you know, takes a little bit of time off to do it. Uh, yeah, I think that being able to still make art, you know, before I, you know, go to the great beyond is still something I want to get back to. I've signed up for my fourth five-year term here, and if you, if you were to ask me, well, what would you speculate doing beyond five years? It might be to 
stay here in New Haven and just maybe teach a course a year and, and make art and maybe be one of the artist residents out in West Campus and, and stay engaged because I love being around the students and the faculty in this community and we found it a wonderful place to live and, and be. The, the, the renovation, the expansion was a massive project, mm -hmm. costly, uh, mm -hmm. took many years. Uh, there, there, I imagine there must be some temptation to take a deep breath and just rest for a minute. Um, but, uh, but I know that you're ambitious and Yale is ambitious. Are there other, are there other um, big projects that you're eager for the gallery to take on? What, yeah. Of any kind. Well, there are. The West Campus you just yeah. touched on. The, yeah. the other project I really hope to get done before I leave as director is to unify some of the staff offices that are in the immediate downtown. One thing I didn't mention is when we cleared out those three buildings that are now the Yale Art Gallery proper, we call it sort of the mothership on Chapel Street, we took an awful lot of our offices out of those buildings with the idea to maximize more of these object classrooms and galleries. So we're actually staffed in four different buildings in the immediate area mm. downtown, and we've been offered a building by Yale uh, to move into on Crown Street, but it's another one that requires about just under 20,000 square feet, but it's going to require about a $15 million uh, renovation. So, you know, there's more money to raise. My first obligation, frankly, as director right now, working with the university and staff, is to get us fully back to the kind of secure financial position we were in before the art galleries and Yale's endowment took a strong hit in the in the recession of, of 2008 because you know so many people suffered a big you know downturn in the value of their endowments or their contributions whatever we were frankly deeply fortunate that we haven't had to lay off a single person we were able to raise the money from our donors to finish the renovation even in the teeth of the recession but Yale still has an overall small structural deficit we're all trying to eliminate and build our endowment back to the point that, you know, my greatest hope is to leave my successor in a very strong and firm financial position, but still hungry to want to <laughs> raise money for new projects. Uh, we're going to wrap this up in just a minute, but I, I have to ask about a tombstone that I noticed uh, yeah. when I went through uh, the gallery uh, yeah. most recently yeah. um, of John Trumbull. Um, right. Is it true that he at one time was buried beneath the gallery? And remind viewers who he is. Well, John Colonel Colonel John Trumbull, the, the founding uh, artist who, who created the Yale Art Gallery back in 1832, was in fact actually buried along with his wife under the original John, the Trumbull Gallery on Old Yale campus. That building was torn down in 1901 at Yale's bicentennial. And his remains were, were placed under Street Hall, later transferred. Which is now one of the yeah, but it, then galleries they were, buildings. Yeah, but then they were later transferred underneath to uh, the Swartow building for a while when, when art history uh, uh, took over Street Hall for a while. The, 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 the original document said his, his, he needed to always be near his Washington paintings, underneath them. And Yale observed that very strictly. And uh, so when we renovated Street Hall, which was the, the building of the first school of art, we reburied he and his wife are under there, right under his paintings, uh, down under the bottom of, the, of Street Hall. And, and I always tell people we have the longest artist in residence in America. <laughs> Jock Reynolds, director of the Yale University Art Gallery, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. Yeah, well, Thanks to all of you for watching, and please do join us again next time. My pleasure. Thanks.